Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by Miller and Chevalier. I'm Lauren Pons. I'm an international tax and tax policy lawyer at Miller and Chevalier. As usual, I am joined by my co-host, Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller and Chevalier. And in this episode, we are joined by another esteemed colleague, tax litigator and tax department chair, Kevin Kenworthy. Today, we are going to focus on an order in a tax case that was issued by the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington in a high-profile transfer pricing dispute between the government and Microsoft. That order addressed the taxpayer's claims of privilege and work product protection for some tax planning documents and could have far-reaching implications for how taxpayers carry out their international tax planning and the extent to which they do so using accounting firms. So to refresh your your recollection, the idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so that our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regs, or in this case, the district court's order in front of them. As always, first, a disclaimer. Tax Break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So let's get started. Uh, Our topic today is the Microsoft privilege dispute uh, and whether on a broader scale, transfer pricing planning advice is privileged. That's the question presented in the case. So Microsoft in the not too distant past, the order was issued in mid January of this year suffered a procedural setback in their high-profile transfer pricing dispute with the IRS. A U.S. District Court ruled that documents prepared in connection with the company's transfer pricing planning were not protected from disclosure to the service. The case is a good example of how the courts and taxpayers struggle to apply evidentiary privileges in the tax field. And the court's decision calls into question whether confidential advice concerning transfer pricing planning can be protected from disclosure to the IRS. So Kevin, why don't you kick us off here and give us a thumbnail sketch of the Microsoft case and how this dispute in particular came about. Sure, Lauren, Steve, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for that introduction. Um, The IRS is conducting a long running audit of, of Microsoft based on press reports the audit could result in an enormous tax bill from Microsoft at some point in the future. The dispute arises out of the company's implementation of a qualified tax uh, cost-sharing arrangement under the U.S. transfer pricing regulations. As most of our audience on this podcast will know, cost-sharing arrangements permit related parties to co-develop and then exploit intangible property. And under a cost-sharing arrangement, each party must contribute uh, a share of the development cost commensurate with the reasonably anticipated benefits of the arrangement. And to the extent that one party to the agreement contributes existing or pre-existing intangible property, the other party must make a buy-in payment in an amount representing the fair market value of the existing IP. Microsoft had a long running uh, manufacturing operation in Puerto Rico. Um, I understand that they burned uh, uh, CDs and other physical media with the company's software there. Those operations previously benefited from tax benefited enacted by the U.S. Congress to promote employment and investment in Puerto Rico. And when those statutory tax benefits expired, 
Puerto Rico became a much less attractive site for such investments. But rather than relocate or shut down those operations, Microsoft decided to have its Puerto Rico entity enter into a qualified cost-sharing arrangement. In this way, the Puerto Rico entity could share in the profits generated from the development of new software products. Coupled with tax incentives granted by the Puerto Rican tax authorities, the new structure offered substantial tax savings. And in the course of the IRS's examination of the tax benefits, the IRS issued administrative summonses for information about that structure. And this included so-called designated summonses. A designated summons is a special species of administrative summons that simultaneously uh, seeks information from the taxpayer while also suspending the statute of limitations on assessment, which gives the government substantial leverage in getting additional information. By this time in January, Microsoft had already unsuccessfully challenged those summonses and had been ordered to produce documents. The current dispute concerns whether documents uh, Microsoft sought to hold back on the basis of one of the recognized evidentiary privileges. Uh, there were exactly 174 documents. Microsoft argued that some of those documents were protected by the work product doctrine. Some were protected by the attorney-client privilege and some were protected by uh, the so-called Section 7525 protection for federally authorized tax practitioners. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay, so you, you've given us a lot of information there. So I heard attorney-client privilege, work product doctrine, and Section 7525. Those are uh, three kinds of protections that we might have, but different groups of practitioners can afford protections under different of those of those um, doctrines or privileges. So, at a high level, how do we get into these fights, and and what does each one of these um, ideas or, or doctrines protect, and, and who can invoke that protection? Sure, each of the three that we described here, and there are others, but the ones that are relevant here are those three, uh, emanate from slightly different policy considerations. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, most of these fights about are about whether the privilege, the relevant privilege attaches in the first place, or whether it, if it has once attached, if it's been waived. Mm -hmm. This particular fight is whether these privileges attached in the first place to the communications that, that Microsoft sought to hold back. The work product doctrine uh, is designed to protect the adversarial process for resolving disputes under our legal system, to keep one party from taking undue advantage of the other party, and so in, in deciding whether the privilege attaches, you ask yourself, was it reasonable to anticipate um, litigation at the time the document was created? And what was the purpose for, for, for the communication? The attorney-client privilege often overlaps with that, but it actually has a different policy foundation. And it's designed to foster confidential communications between a client and attorney. The idea being that, that the better people understand their legal rights and obligations, the better they'll be able to protect themselves and to keep their activities within the bounds of the law. So you have questions like, what was the purpose of, was the, purpose of the communication to uh, actually seek or to, to give legal advice? And was the communication maintained in confidence? The, the Section 7525 is purely a creature of statute, and the goal behind that was to extend the attorney-client privilege to certain communications between a client and what's styled a federally authorized tax practitioner, which for purposes of this conversation today, I'll just refer to account accountants. 
it, it basically provides that in, in seeking or giving certain types of federal income tax advice, the privilege will attach to the same extent that it would if the communication had happened between a client and an attorney. But there are, are important uh, carve-outs. The, for example, the 7525 protection does not extend to state tax communications. It does not protect uh, communications that might relate to a criminal violation of the tax code. And for purposes of the conversation today, it also does not extend to communications relating to the promotion of a tax shelter. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. And, and just one elaboration on, on the, the different protections. I mean, I, th- I think one sort of useful, useful heuristic in thinking about both of them is that the attorney work product protection is a, is a protection that, that covers a broader class of individuals, broader class of practitioners. So accountants can be, a communication that is disclosed to accountants can still be protected by the work product protection. But it is a weaker protection. There are certain circumstances under which the other party could actually show that the only way they could get the information is by breaking that protection. And and that is a possibility. The attorney-client privilege is a much stronger protection and no showing made by the other side other than some sort of crime fraud exception um, can actually break the privilege, but it's but it is limited to a narrower class of practitioners and one that without the 7525 protection we're talking about, one that typically has excluded uh, accountants. We're all not lawyers. That's right. <laughs> okay. Oh well, I mean, right. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about Covell a little bit. It certainly, it okay. certainly can, ex- it certainly can be expanded to encompass folks who are in the business of translating either complex or foreign language right. uh, advice between the attorney and the client. Yes. Right. So seventy-five twenty-five is our statutory analog to attorney-client privilege with some limitations. Right. As outlined above. Okay, so let's look at, let's turn our attention back to the court order, the case and the order, and look at what the court said about uh, Microsoft's asserted work product claim and maybe um, how that would, is differentiated from an attorney client privilege type of argument. Sure. The, as said at the outset, there were 174 documents in dispute, and those documents were submitted to the court for what's called in-camera inspection. Basically, the judge had a chance to examine the documents and consider uh, Microsoft's privilege claims. The opinion addresses, at a kind of a broad level, uh, the court's approach to those different uh, documents, uh, different privileges. And on the, um, the work product doc- documents, Uh, the court rejected all of the claims of work product. The court observed that that even to the extent that these documents were prepared in anticipation of litigation at all, they also served a dual purpose. It's not unusual for privileged documents to serve more than one purpose. Um, You know, a a, a document can be uh, prepared to seek legal advice while also soliciting business advice. And those kinds of dual purpose documents present a challenge for courts to tease out know, what what prevails here. And in the work product area, courts have adopted different formulations for uh, deciding whether the work product doctrine attaches to dual purpose documents. Some courts have asked whether uh, the document was prepared because of litigation, as well as other other reasons. Other courts, including this court, uh, have adopted the primary purpose test. 
uh, mainly was whether the document was prepared primarily for use in litigation. And on that score, the court uh, concluded in fairly sweeping ways that none of these documents met that standard. Um, the court pointed to the fact that Microsoft was engaged in what the court considered aggressive tax planning and concluded that Microsoft anticipated litigation only because of the transactions that it undertook. Uh, the court said Microsoft anticipated litigation because of the documents it created. That doesn't, that makes for a nice soundbite, but in, but in my opinion, doesn't really lead to a very coherent analysis. Um, but clearly the court was not persuaded that these documents met the, 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 the standard of being prepared primarily for litigation. And we have a we have a long history of these kinds of disputes in especially in tax because the line between tax legal advice that would be traditionally subjected to the attorney client privilege and and business advice which is not <laughs> at least at least in name not protected by the attorney client privilege is a tough line to draw in many senses, business decisions are, as they should be, informed by, by tax considerations. So the idea that we can simply extricate uh, business decisions from, from legal advice is, is, is tricky in the tax field, and, and courts have struggled with this. I mean, we, you know, one of the disputes that we had for many years was about the extent to which tax uh, work papers were were protected tax reserve work papers were protected and and part of what happened there was the this dispute about well you prepared these tax reserve work papers because there might be a dispute is that a dispute that anticipates litigation are you is there an anticipation of litigation were they prepared because of litigation and some courts said sure you could anticipate uh, uh litigation because you've had many disputes with the IRS over the years on these kinds of issues. So one of the things that we've, we've learned over the years is the extent to which uh, tax reserve work papers are protected by, the, uh, by attorney work product protection. And, and one of the historic disputes that has, has been through the courts in Textron and in other cases is the extent to which uh, documents that are prepared that are tax documents, so tax reserve documents deciding how much is at risk for any particular tax issue, um, those, those documents often are prepared because there is a dispute that could theoretically come up. Are they prepared for litigation? Well, there's an argument that, that, there's, that they are not. Are they prepared because of litigation? There's a pretty good argument that they are, that you're preparing these because you anticipate some kind of dispute down the road with the IRS about your tax treatment. So the, it's a hard call, I think, for many courts on, on many kinds of tax tax documents. And, and these, these are, they're not so different than the kinds of dispute that we see here with, with Microsoft. Right, so does it become a question of, of uh, proximity of the dispute, a temporal? analysis so you have to go through audit first on some level and then eventually you may get to litigation or you may go, uh, go get there quickly depending on your your audit procedure so it seems to me that you could always successfully argue you should always be able to successfully argue that it's anticipation of litigation or 
Yeah, because that is the ultimate resolution it's a, if the audit does not go well. I think that's right. I think there is a definitely a temporal aspect to this that, that generalist judges, and they're the ones that are deciding these disputes, are more comfortable concluding that particularly the work product doctrine, uh, work product protection, arises when you have uh, actual or imminent litigation. Uh, and while it is true that you can anticipate litigation at the time that you are preparing a tax return, or at the time even you're uh, undertaking a transaction, uh, the sequencing, I think, makes it much more difficult for, for a, a generalist judge to, to agree with that principle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and in this in this case, right, that the court actually drew a bright line and said that you know the Microsoft claimed that by 2004 it was well aware of the IRS challenging numerous companies' transfer pricing and knew with certainty that Microsoft's transfer pricing would be under attack. So the court said, "That's it. You've picked your bright line. It's 2004, and there's no support for your work product protection for the 16 documents in the bunch." that predated 2004. So they did, they drew precisely that kind of temporal line. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I've, I've thought over the years that there, there, there seem to be so many difficult privilege disputes arising in the tax field. And uh, why is that? And uh, some of the conclusions that I've come to is, first of all, again, it's a generalist judge deciding these issues and everyone has some exposure to tax. And to a degree, a lot of what tax compliance is or even tax planning seems like an administrative function, not really the application of legal analysis to facts. But as everybody on this call knows, uh, you know, particularly in the corporate tax field, you know, the, you know, tax planning and tax compliance can include a number of challenging legal determinations. Which brings me to the other reason why I think um, these privilege disputes are often so difficult and is that in the tax field, accountants and other non-lawyers are um, providing very sophisticated legal advice uh, to clients about how the laws operate. And that's by design. Uh, there's no question that federal law has preempted state unauthorized practice of law laws in terms of, of, of federal taxes. Uh, accountants and other non-lawyers can practice before the IRS. Uh, accountants can even appear before the tax court. So, you know, accountants are doing what would, in other contexts would be seen as, as legal work. Uh, but I think that that tends to confuse judges or makes these, these privileged disputes sometimes even more difficult than they would be otherwise. It does. I think, especially in the context of transfer pricing, to your point, a lot, um, you know, the lion's share of transfer pricing disputes have to do with valuations, which lawyers don't do. We, we, right. we, the work is undertaken by economists, often at accounting firms. Um, and so that would seem to me to even further kind of blur the line between business and tax advice, to your earlier point, Steve. Um, and I also think that if you I would find I would have a hard time believing that this outcome would have been reached in a tax court setting. So you know it's it's hard to you have choice of venue, you have things to weigh when to, when trying to decide where you're going to take your case. But um, this is a big issue and and something worth considering. Yeah, and I th I, th I that's interesting that you say that. I mean, would the tax would this case have <laughs> shaken out the same way if it were at the at the tax court? And I, I think there's good reason to think maybe not. Yeah. Um, 
as we're as we're going to talk about, you know, there are there's an argument that that this decision um, suggests an evisceration of of at least the 7525 privilege, and the tax court might have gone to greater lengths to to reconstitute that in some form out of I think out of an allegiance to the notion that that Congress actually meant for that section to do something. Right. It was a way to, to replicate the attorney-client coverage and protection. Um, Let's turn to the court's analysis of Section 7525. First, a little table setting. Um, Microsoft had engaged KPMG to assist in structuring uh, their Puerto Rican transfer pricing planning. It's not clear from the opinion whether KPMG approached Microsoft first or Microsoft solicited their advice. Uh, it shouldn't really matter. Uh, but, th but the documents, uh, the, the bulk of the documents are involved communications by or between KPMG, uh, the Microsoft in-house folks, and Microsoft's outside counsel. And the court looked at uh, whether the 7525 privilege applied, and in particular analyzed whether the carve-out for documents um, involved in the promotion of a tax shelter uh, applied here. And for this purpose, the statute defines a tax shelter as any plan or arrangement, a significant purpose of which is the avoidance or evasion of tax. And in what was a surprise to me, and probably to many others reading this opinion, is that the court found fairly categorically that a significant purpose, if not the sole purpose, of Microsoft's transaction was to avoid or evade federal income tax. This is a bit of a surprise because, as, as we discussed, they were talking about engaging in a qualified cost-sharing arrangement, a structure that is explicitly blessed in the U.S. Uh, transfer pricing um, regulations and has been there forever. It's understood that the purpose is there. If, if you engage in a qualified cost-sharing plan uh, arrangement, then you will be insulated from, from challenge by, from the IRS on transfer pricing. So people have an incentive to engage in, in cost-sharing agreements to reduce the possibility of, of tax disputes. And yes, uh, um, a taxpayer wouldn't do it if they didn't think it was advantageous, including a potential tax savings. But it seems to me that that's uh, part of the, the system that's baked in. And to characterize that as a, as a tax shelter uh, is a bit extreme, in my opinion. Yeah, and another layer to this, I mean, it seems like, and I, I can't, I don't pretend to understand all the uh, international tax planning technicalities here, but uh, Microsoft had this structure in place with, with a Puerto Rican entity because of entirely valid congressional incentives to locate businesses in Puerto Rico. Once that tax incentive went away, Microsoft moved to restructure its operations because that tax incentive was a reason for locating locating some of its operations there. So now they have a choice. What are they going to do to restructure their operations? They sought to do it in a way that minimized their tax going forward, like any business would do. That seems like a perfectly legitimate consideration. And here the court makes it as if that, you know, tax is the sort of the sum total of what's going on in, in the, sole, the sole motivator for Microsoft's operation, uh, you know, structural change here. But of course tax is because the entire, the structure was as, was as it had been, was built 
around this tax incentive. Right. And, and what, you know, when they, when they sought to sort of rearrange their operations in a way, uh, they sought to do it in a way that was tax efficient. So, I mean, I, I do think there's a, there's a real weakness at the heart of the court's reasoning there that, that, yeah. you know, you, yes, this was driven by tax. Of course it was because the structure was in place in the first instance because of a tax incentive and an entirely legitimate tax incentive, one that Congress actually, you know, dangled in front of the taxpayers and they, they took them up on. I mean. Yeah. Right, right. So it's more of a status quo. And what, what, what I found astounding, frankly, was the court uh, said, didn't imply, they said that um, if Microsoft had had a non-tax operational reason for entering into a cost-sharing arrangement, then it might have passed muster. But that's an impossibly high standard, not only for cost-sharing arrangements, but I would submit even for transfer pricing in general, which necessarily involves transactions between related parties. So it's, it's, it's just, um, I think if this, if this analysis were extended uh, beyond this case, uh, it would be very problematic about whether any transfer pricing planning could be covered by the section 7525 production. So right. to, be, to be clear, any transfer pricing planning by accounting firms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because for the, uh, and this is not a promotion for, for attorneys, but there is no tax shelter carve out for the attorney client privilege. Uh, right. I don't think it doesn't make sense that that should be the deciding factor in this case. Well, yes, we have to start from the erroneous premise that a cost sharing arrangement is a tax shelter yeah. to get there. Um, all right. So we alluded to a Covell arrangement earlier. Could that save us here in, under these facts? Uh, possibly, but uh, but I would think there's some significant challenges for that. And let's let's back up a little bit. Um, most people uh, throw the around, uh, term Covell around, and it, it contemplates an arrangement where an attorney engages the services of a non-attorney, say an accountant, to provide uh, legal advice. And it's true that uh, attorneys can routinely engage uh, non-attorney agents to assist them in providing legal advice and the communications with that non-attorney agent are, not, uh, are still covered by the privilege. Um, Looking back at the case, Covell was an old Second Circuit case in the early 1960s. But there, uh, Covell was a real person, and he was a former IRS agent who had gone to work uh, for a law firm that specialized in the tax field. And in conjunction with a grand jury investigation of one of the law firm's clients, Covell was called to testify about his communications with that client, and he refused and was uh, ordered to uh, compel uh, to, to communicate what he'd been told or what he'd said to the client uh, and refused. And it went up onto the Second Circuit. And there, the Second Circuit um, analogized or drew an analogy between um, a translator, a foreign language translator. And while it's clearly accepted that, that if, if, a, if an attorney has, say, a non-English speaking client, they can engage the services of a non-attorney translator to facilitate the transmission of privileged communication and that there's no question that the privilege would still attach, assuming that, that everybody maintains those communications in confidence. And extending that analogy to, to the field of accounting, the court uh, asserted that 
that accounting concepts were similar to a foreign language for certain uh, lawyers and that it was maybe uh, helpful or even essential um, for an attorney to have a, an, an accountant translate financial or accounting concepts so that the attorney could provide privileged legal advice. But the court also cautioned that um, the privilege would not attach if, if the, the communications were seeking or giving primarily accounting as opposed to legal advice, or if in substance, the, the uh, client had engaged the accountant directly to provide their advice. So it, that leads to the conclusion that you cannot uh, have an accounting firm engaged to provide what would be undisputably privileged legal advice if it were given by an attorney, uh, but given by an accountant in this case, and simply have an attorney you know, come in and, and inform, uh, retain the, the accountant to provide that advice. That doesn't work. And I would be concerned on the facts, the limited facts that we have here, whether you could make that case, because it seems pretty clear that, that uh, Microsoft engaged uh, KPMG directly to provide tax advice. Uh, and, uh, and even though they have in-house and out, outside counsel, uh, it would be uh, a heavy lift, uh, I suspect, to, to, to get this under a Covell arrangement. Not that you can't have a defensible Covell arrangement, but, but it has to be simply more than, than a fig leaf. Mm -hmm. Right. I think um, that's a very helpful illustration. A lot of times it seems that uh, people's understanding of a Covell is that as long as there is an attorney on the communication chain, uh, that, that saves the communications and, and affords privilege. And it's, it's in fact, uh, not that simple. And the, the work direction should probably be in the opposite direction. <laughs> so the attorneys are doing the work. Um, and the non-attorneys are working at the direction of the attorneys. So. That is the that is the safer route. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <And> the, yeah. <laughs> the more defensible route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. You can't. You just. You can't funnel things through attorneys to get to get the additional protection of the attorney-client privilege. That's, That's right. it's 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 a funneling is the concept I think that the the courts have have used, and and you can't do it. It doesn't work. So yeah. when I talk to clients about it, I you know, counsel them to go into these arrangements with their eyes wide open and understand the vulnerabilities uh, of structuring a Covell arrangement. That's not to say they're not useful, but but the, the, there's some caution is is suggested. Right. All right. Anything else we want to touch on on this case? Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to mention was that you know that I th I found the court's decision to be a little short on discussions of the rationale behind the attorney-client privilege. As Kevin mentioned at the outset, you know, one of the purposes of the attorney-client privilege is to essentially facilitate people seeking legal advice. And the thinking is that if we allow them to do that in a way that protects their communications with attorneys, that they will have full and frank communication with their attorneys, and that their attorneys will advise them in a way that actually promotes compliance with the law. The, presumably, the federally authorized tax practitioner privilege under 7525 is meant to do the same sort of thing. It's meant to encourage taxpayers to go to 
authorized tax practitioners who will help them navigate the complexity of the statute and regulations. And that's pretty complex for anyone. And so the idea that, that they, that this is a, that this is a, you know, just sort of a pure shelter promotion and almost anything that's, that's meant to uh, reduce ultimate tax liability, especially if it doesn't have some other sort of business purpose, seems to me that that threatens to have a chilling effect on taxpayers seeking advice from federally authorized tax practitioners. And, and the reality is, I mean, certainly in the, in the corporate context, Microsoft can afford to pay any number of law firms and accounting firms to get advice. But as businesses get smaller and you're talking about individuals, uh, it seems to me like this, this decision has farther reaching effects on the, the, you know, on, people in on on a, on encouraging taxpayers to go and get advice from federally authorized tax practitioners and that seems to me problematic i mean we 7525 has not been used to great success since it was enacted it was enacted back in 1998 yeah. after 1998 we sort of had a big run of tax shelter cases and it was not a particularly effective mechanism for protecting information in those cases because of the shelter exception that we're talking about today. I, I think, and others thought that there would be a sort of new age of 7525. And we've claimed, we've claimed 7525 privilege over particular communications because we think there's something to it. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this decision sort of it throws cold water on 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 that thinking, and and I think it'll 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 be interesting to see how these kinds of disputes play out in in other district courts, and especially in in the tax court. So. I think that's right. I don't think they ever would have imagined that they were going to fall into the tax shelter exception at the outset, which is a big problem. <laughs> no, I mean, and and you know, it, it not only that, but I think that. If if I were practicing in an accounting firm, I would be terrified by the the court has this it it notes uh, this BDO Seidman decision and says oh by the way there's similarities between this tax shelter exception to seventy five twenty five and the crime fraud exception to the attorney client privilege and the crime fraud exception obviously says that you can't you can't protect information when you go to seek your lawyer's advice on how to commit crimes. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that the accounting firms would be very comfortable with the notion that, that any of their certainly placing a taxpayer into a, a qualified cost sharing arrangement is the kind of thing that implicates this, the shelter exception and, and is, is an analog to, to assisting, <laughs> assisting their clients in committing crimes. Yes. Yes. Not where you want to be as a professional. No, no. Well, and that's something I don't think part of the fabric of what, the folks at account. I mean, now, Lauren, you knew, you know, you were an accounting firm. That's not sort of, that's not sort of part of the fabric of what you think you're doing. It is not. <laughs> not at all. Not at Especially all. not something like transfer pricing where there are, there is a, uh, there is a, a lot of subjectivity to, you know, how the arm's length standard gets applied. There was and, a lot of, yes, a lot of subjectivity and a lot of, um, I mean, in this case, valuation was was the crux, or is the crux of the actual substantive case. 
Um, and so the blurring of business versus tax, the idea that a cost sharing arrangement could be equated with the tax shelter um, is beyond to me. Um, and I do think it is a, this case stands for an endorsement of going straight to tax court when you have complex uh, tax disputes because this is, this is not something you want to lose on. You don't want to be deemed to have uh, entered into a tax shelter. Uh, when the the uh, arrangement into which you've entered is a creature of the tax code. <laughs> so, Yeah, I just would conclude by saying the last word has not been written on this. It's possible that this issue will be appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Um, traditionally, however, uh, privilege issues are not easy for courts of appeal to, to revisit that they're basically decided at the trial court level. Right, right. Especially in the wake of an in-camera review of the documents, which right. the court the court did in this instance. So, right, right. So we will we will stay tuned, but not hope for for much in the way of a reversal. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Kevin, for joining us. Um, thank you to our dear listeners. As usual, if you have comments, uh, ideas for potential topics, or any other feedback, please email us at podcasts at millchef.com and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.